This is the finale in episode 10 of the audiobook slash podcast project called Unconscious Subconscious, voiced, written, and produced by me, Matt Rebar. Chapter negative 38, Mother and Son 2, Facade Sensation. Throughout Gignosco, time had meant nothing. Time had spat in my face, tied me to a chariot and dragged me around the course, and had left me confused with every movement I performed. I could not tell you how long I fell through that tunnel, as clearly I had vanished off the side of the obliteration and into the unknown which was waiting for me. I was spat out and landed harshly upon a flat surface. I looked up to find that there was a ceiling of rock which was barely seen past the purple haze of the unknown. I didn't know where I was, but I could tell that I was the only human in sight. There were four rocks down here, but they were on their own existence. There was nothing else between the obliteration and seemingly this far deep in Gignosco. Was this where Clark hid away because nobody went this low and deep in Gignosco? I stood up and looked at the multicolored flowers around me. I was standing on a plateau filled with colors of every genius in who. You name the color and the type of flower, and no doubt it was here among the well-tamed garden which spanned for a long while. But the plateau was not the main attraction here. It was the nearby building which took up most space. The building was a cathedral with two large towers in the front and an even larger tower in the back of the brick and stone building. Two wooden doors remained closed, while a small pathway led next to the cathedral and linked over to a rock behind me. The rock behind me covered the third rock pretty well, but even from here I could see some type of beautiful building in the distance. I walked through the flowers and saw a sign standing close to the door, which marked both locations. Lerevib Cathedral and Requiem Plateau. I had no clue about the importance of either of those names, but I figured I'd soon be told what they had to do with Clark King soon enough. I opened the left wooden door to Lerevib Cathedral and entered. Lavender-colored flowers took up the floor of the cathedral, which was of earth and not stone like the structure itself. Even though all of the colors were the beautiful purple shade, none of the flowers present were actual lavender. The flowers mimicked the lavender plant only in the coloration, which was inspired by the name. Purple tulips, daisies, roses, hibiscuses, all the flowers you could think of, but none of them truly lavender except in color. I moved through the cathedral, taking the clear pathway forward. While I strolled, Clark King returned. I was given a new task at work, and finally, therapy was working on me. Well, maybe it wasn't therapy, but I do thank therapy for helping me find what had been subconsciously blocked from me. I had never gotten over the death of my mother, Beverly King. She had been taken by cancer at such a young age, and I had never gotten a chance to properly grieve. I suppose I had tried to grieve, or maybe I had been so busy to otherwise devote time. But it made sense. Her death had been the reason for so many things to my identity. I had devoted myself to Yvette because she had been the first female character I could devote myself to outside of my mother. But my mother had been long gone and forgotten, even though she was always there. She would always be there. I had crossed the cathedral and arrived at where I suppose an altar would be, but instead there was a wall which was shaped to be a human face. The eyes and lips were closed, and the wall was unmoving and unliving as the stone it was made out of. 
I figured I might as well turn around, but before I could leave the cathedral, the stone cracked to life. The mouth and eyes opened to reveal a soft white glow. The face etched in stone was now alive. You're Beverly King, I stated, not even a guess or an assumption. I knew the truth and the narrative by that point. Yes, the stone face whispered, carrying kindness both in her face and her voice. Welcome to Larevib Castle. The name, it's your name, twisted backwards. But why? What's the significance? Because it took a long time for my son to realize how much I had affected him. So long that when he got to the end, everything carried back with him. It was an inversion of sorts. Tell me about Lavender. I do not know about Lavender. If Beverly could shake her head, no doubt she would do it. The only Lavender I know is my favorite plant. Lavender, it's your favorite plant. And then he named something after your favorite plant. I'm assuming Lavender is a government project. It's probably a software system or a hack, a virus. You would know better than I. Beverly was no help in regards to Lavender, but that didn't mean she didn't have plenty to say. You're the one who got to see my son grow up. I didn't get that. He was taken from me. Although I suppose the more accurate term is that I was taken from the world. By cancer? Yes, Beverly confirmed. My death didn't affect him at the time, but later it did. That's what happens sometimes, I shrugged. We don't realize how far the impact goes. We, we don't realize too much anyway. Clark realized it. Have you met Clark? Clark comes here all the time, Beverly nodded. He lives on the other side of these three rocks, so I'll get to see him. Yes, you will, Beverly shook her head. He's probably waiting for you right now as we speak. There was a loud crawling sound from on top of the cathedral. I looked upwards to find what had made the sound, but I only saw a black shape moving away from one of the open windows at the top of the cathedral. What the hell was that? I questioned, asking the stone wall for an answer. The, the intruder is here. Beverly whispered to me as I continued to look through the cathedral's open windows, although nothing was visible. He will not fight you in here. This place is my domain. But the intruder will challenge you outside on the plateau. I'm, I'm so sorry that you have to deal with him. Who is the intruder? He, he's my cancer. Beverly admitted, her breath filled with sadness. I, I thought I could beat him. But I lost a long time ago. Now I'm nothing more than the memories of the living. Stuck wondering what would have happened if I had beaten the intruder, beaten the cancer. It's not your fault. I know. But you sound guilted by it. You're right, I do. I'm not guilted, maybe. I, I'm frustrated. I'd be frustrated as well. The intruder. He will want your heart. Shield your heart very carefully, Sydney. How do you know my name? Because my son knows you, Beverly admitted. Clark and I are close, even though on Earth we only spent a few years of his youth together. Another thing, by the way, the weakness of the intruder is his eyes. The intruder cannot smell nor sense without vision. If you take out his eyes, he will surely die by your hands. Thank you, Beverly. 
I could explain more, but I'll leave that for Clark himself. He will no doubt want to tell you as much as he can. Good luck, Sydney. You're almost there. Without a further sound or word, the stone resealed itself shut. Its eyelids and lips closed out the life and color. I took my leave of the Larevib Cathedral and re-entered the Requiem Plateau. The plateau was empty, and so was the surrounding cathedral. I could tell, though, that someone was around, but I didn't know where they were. But finally, the intruder came out of the bottom side of the rock, surfacing onto the colorful flowers as an opposite attraction to the gardens which were planted for the beauty of Beverly King. The intruder was a silver scorpion, a creature which made sense considering it represented the cancer which took Beverly King away from Clark King and Clark's father. Prior to this, there had only been a bridge which had represented anything related to Beverly Clark, but it was now here, in the core of his being and later on in his life when Beverly's death had meaning. The scorpion indeed had a few eyes on the front of its body, while its spider-like legs looked as if the scorpion's speed would be one of its better stats. The scorpion's tail hung above it, the tip spiked and dripping wet with poison. Beverly had mentioned how the intruder would want my heart, and whether or not it was my heart or just my life was one thing, but I imagined that the scorpion's main form of attack would be its sparkling pike. I pulled out Helena Price's sword and looked forward at the scorpion. I was so close to Clark. He was on the other side of these these small rocks, and I had gone through hell to be here, and I wasn't going to stop now. The scorpion shrieked and moved forward, raising its two meaty claws and preparing its tail. The battle between us began as I used my thin blade to create scratches against the large scorpion. It would be a hassle for me. The large scorpion was about 8 feet wide and its main body was about 15 feet long, excluding the tail. The silver scorpion clicked itself back and forth, dancing like a luchador in front of me. You little bitch. I muttered as we continued to fight. Most people would feel defeated against such a huge beast, but while I had felt emotions throughout my journey in Gignasco, I felt nothing for this scorpion. My true psychopathic, sociopathic, federal agent identity was in full form against this scorpion. The claws came close and I dodged them. All it would take would be one pinch to take out the side of my body. I continued to aim for the scorpion's multi-eyed face, using Beverly's idea to my advantage. Soon the scorpion was blind, crawling around the flowered plateau and swinging its tail around. Now that the eyes were done, I swapped my sword for my gun. I created bullets which flew through the air at extreme speeds, nicking into the scorpion. My techniques was kind of like killing a human being with a butter knife. It could be done, but it was going to take forever. Was I going to get cancer? I was the offspring of a mother who died to it. And at some point, I think getting cancer truly would have been the end of me. I wasn't suicidal. I was just merely fine to cease life in a casual way of someone lost in the world around them. As much as the midlife crisis was over, and as much as it still influenced my current situation in 2012 and going forward, there was always a tinge of averageness. Not average in work, just average in life. But that would help me excel at work. My life had slowly become my work in the end. The scorpion was defeated. My small cuts had added up over time, and the scorpion was now still against the plateau. I didn't know if it was dead or not, but the scorpion was no longer a threat to me. I could straight out kill him, 
but I had seen many agents who tried to further neutralize the situation only to unneutralize the situation. It sounded confusing, but it was the truth. I took to the path by the cathedral side, which wound down and around. It was a long walk filled with silence. I tried not to think about anything so that my mind was, for once, purified within Gignosco. The path ended up connecting to the second and middle rock of these last three rocks I would visit. I would not need to visit the unknown gumdrop shape and walled-off rock to the north of the southern three. There was a small opening to a dark cavern, and once again I realized I would need to jump into the unknown rather than question it. I looked at the sign to the side of the cave entrance which read, Pivotal Point Cavern. Past this cave would be the true domain of Clark, and it was that fact which propelled me. Chapter negative 39, The True Conception of Lavender. The silence and darkness together formed a trap within my mind. I felt like I was playing adventures in Gignasco over and over again, like some wound-up broken toy destined to cycle through misfortune. I could still recall the neon trees in the beginning, Rodney, Lake Austin, Tear, the savages, the cultured people of Gignasco and their royalty. This bled into my times with Helena Price before she was taken by an eater, the conformists of Identitas Village and the colony, the Awakening Jungle's massive body, and the small yet important Collegium City. It felt like yesterday that I was a guest turned suspect in Gear Castle. Yesterday that I was running from negatives and zipping as a go-kart champion. I distinctly remember the sheen of metal within the Magnanese Castle. The smell of stale fries against hopelessness at Ricky's. The beautiful fountain of Yvette and its aggressor of a protector. Perhaps the worst time came with Miss Shelley's plantation and Mr. Wyatt's shack. I was freed to a town which worshipped a statue, became a victim of kinds in Fiesville, explored a court and a library, and wound up defeated within the apocalypse. And now, I was here. I was almost there. And there would be Clark. Should I call him Clark the way Gignosco calls him? Or do I refer to him as merely the true human he is, Clark King? He was regarded to many as a god, others as a myth, and some as an approachable individual. The last option was the most accurate in relation to the true identity of the human being whose mind I was merely a guest within. There were so many questions bubbling inside me. Who exactly were Rodney, Helena, James, Jerome, and Bill in real life, Earth, and... Whatever happened to them and to him? Why did it take so long to realize that he had not gotten over the death of his mother? What was his relation like with his father? Did he ever find love again, or does he believe he is destined to fail? And perhaps the most important question of all, what is Lavender, aka The Code, aka Life Changer? I was slightly angry, but not really because of all the unknown questions, especially because you know, I had spent what seemed to be a month digging around this fabricated world, but for surviving and being on the brink of Clark, I believed I deserved answers. The darkness began to dissolve as streaks of light could be seen in the distance. I had been using my other senses of touch and audio to get through the cave, but now I pressed onward. The cavern had a natural open room, sort of like an atrium without a ceiling. Upon the perimeter of the open circle of light were strands of lavender which fell down like ivy in a romantic and beautiful mannerism. 
In the middle of the circle of light was a raised pedestal off the cave floor. Upon the altar was a single contemporary computer which was typing out code as I approached. I stood on the outside of light, still standing into the darkness even though the light was visible upon my body. I barely stepped into the light structure when the computer in front of me went haywire. The code began firing to life upon the computer screen, which turned forest green and teal blue to a fierce hot red. The computer seemed to be shaking, almost as if the code was becoming to life. With a singular digital scream, large vines of lavender spewed out from the computer, which lifted itself high into the sky. One of the lavender vines slammed into me, causing me to be knocked out against part of the cavern wall. My breath vanished from my lungs. I fell to the ground and watched as the computers continued to scream in what sounded like pain. The lavender vines continued to whip up around in the air in a freeform flail that I could, didn't know how to counter. I pulled out the gun, though, from the bag, which had been like a second skin this entire journey, and began firing bullets immediately. I tried aiming at the computer, but the computer shielded itself with the lavender plants. I tried fleeing the scene, but the two cavern paths were also blocked off with lavender plants. It was interesting how something Clark King had taken from his mother's love had now turned into a weapon. I dodged the lavender vines, which twirled around in large circles, slammed down right by me, and tried to trip me up in so many ways. This was another moment where I was fortunate enough to have a background as a federal agent. During the battle, Clark King came to me, even though the time was not really the best to hear his story and opinions. I was assigned the project, and so I completed it. I had finally left the zone of depression and midlife crisis pain following the soon-to-be completion of Lavender. And then, when I was done, I needed a name. This was back to when I was known simply as Clark. Calling the program Beverly wasn't really accurate in my feelings, though my program and story started with my mother. Lavender made so much more sense. The code was going to be life-changing. Now it was guaranteed that Lavender was the name of a program or code that Clark King was developing on before his coma. The federal government employees wanted me to extract information on Lavender, but why? Wasn't the program complete, or had something gone wrong, or had been missing? I, I wasn't sure about the specifics of Lavender, mainly because in my mind, Clark King as a person came first. Who cared about Lavender above a human being? Not that me outside of Gignosca would have thought like that, but still. I got slammed once more by one of the Lavender Vines, this time hurled even further of a distance at a higher speed, and which caused a more powerful impact. Fuck, I couldn't believe the power of the computer that I was facing, nor could I believe what I had just admitted. Clark King as a human being came before his own code. I re-entered battle even though I was struggling to accept the conclusion I had derived. I dodged vines and shot bullets directly at the computer in the middle who couldn't hide for too much longer. Before Kignosko, before Clark in this mission, I would never have come to the conclusion that a human life was greater than an important creation of human product. It was like suggesting a human was better than clean water, space travel, maps of the world. All of those inventions were created by human hand, but their implication was far more important than a human body, a human soul. But now, after getting to know Clark King, I felt like I had finally understood a human being for the first time in my life. It was true. I never related to anyone, nor I had I fully understood anyone in the way I knew Clark King. I studied people, knew their habits, read their emotions, could logically explain their makeup. 
but I'd never seen such a complexity in human beings before. I'd never personally witnessed such a roller coaster, which had brought emotional ignite. I had been changed. Changed in a way I did not believe I was able to change with. I never imagined feeling emotion or relating to other humans. I had been the outsider of outsiders, a lone shark content on his own trajectory. But now I was steaming with dimensional. I had proved myself wrong. I didn't know if this would last. Would I be back to my old self or would I regain this new self on Earth? I didn't dwell on this concept but used the emotion to my advantage. Most of the lavender vines had been cut off from the computer, which just left its original body and shield. The lavender vines that were connected to the opening and drifted down like lights were not my enemy, and swung in slow motion as the computer yelled again with its distorted garble. With a sudden spring forward, metallic vines came out of the computer. This time, the lavender plant had hardened into metal, looking more like blades than a plant. The vines began spinning quicker than regular plants. I was getting destroyed. The metal tore into my skin like wasps digging for penetration before tearing my flesh out of its body. It would be an identity crisis between the bitten flesh and the blood splatter which kicked up against me and back onto the small blades. The individual leaves of the plant were now razors designed to teach me a lesson. Before I was out for the count or could otherwise do anything to retaliate, there was a battle cry from above. I looked up to see a figure I had recognized sitting in his wheelchair as if nothing had happened earlier to threaten his existence. Rodney flew in and crashed down upon the computer, destroying the machine in one large crash. The computer howled, the entire software screeching as Rodney's force smashed it into a thousand shards. But the computer had ordered one last attack, and so the metallic vines whipped up and into Rodney. Rodney! I cried, knowing I sounded cliche, even though I couldn't care less. The metallic lavender vine slammed down to the ground, and thankfully I avoided all of them, although another spike came down upon Rodney, puncturing him with another blow to add to his carved-up remains. Sydney, Rodney responded, turning to me with a soft smile upon the complexion of his face. How did you find me? How did you escape Blade Desert? How are you alive? I, I wasn't dead, and... And thankfully, they, they didn't think I was entertaining. They they kept me in a cage, and it was, it was easy to escape. And I, I got to Cultura City and found you were heading south, so I immediately jumped out of the city and landed close to Collegium City, and I, I wasn't too far behind you. Gear Castle wasn't ready for guests due to the murder of the governor and his wife, and I didn't think you killed him. I, I still believed in you. I was behind Every step of the way, I heard about you freeing Miss Shelley's slaves and how you wanted to save Fetusville even though you couldn't, and I came to the obliteration. And there was something about this hole. How I find it, I'll never know, but here I am. As if only given enough life to extend the conversation to explain how he had arrived, Rodney went limp. His body draining its fluids onto the metal lavender vines and his face lit up in a cheery child's manner which spoke to Rodney's character. I was shocked to hear that Rodney had traveled so far to track me down, even further shocked to find that he had believed I was a good person, even though hearing the different accusations placed upon me by different members of Gignosco. I held Rodney's hand, even though I knew Rodney was gone, but in that small moment I was able to thank Rodney for all he had done for me. He was a loyal friend. The fact that I had one of those was 
staggering to me. I looked around the sunlit cavern circle and found that nothing remained here except for the alive lavender which swung gently from the ceiling perimeter. There was a soft cry, which I had been kind of been able to hear at first, but I moved over to the destroyed computer and the mutterings became more audible. Lavender, the code, life changer. The three were placed on repeat in some twisted broken record mannerism that mocked my victory. Without Rodney, I would have been bested here in the cavern. It would have been some spiked irony. The words continued, and I decided that it was time to move forward, heading out via the only way forward into darkness again. This time, the darkness vanished and light emerged, and once again I stood in the surrounding purple void, albeit most likely for the last time. A small series of steps connected the pivotal point cavern with the next destination. Up ahead was a castle built on an austere rock, The square foundation was crisp and clean, made with rock and stone, fortified with glass windows, balconies, and beneath and in front of the castle was a large garden which appeared its own labyrinth. I crossed the steps and arrived on the same plane as the castle. Right upon the edge of the rock was another infamous wooden Gignosca sign with sharp text which read, Clark Castle. Chapter negative 40, Clark, the Final Veil. The gardens of Clark Castle were a decadent display of real and fantasy flowers and plants. Stone fountains sprang softly to life with clear spring water, splashing over the carved stone figures and landscapes and pulling together at the basin as if see-through glass. Hedges, trees, and shrubs were lined up in a perfect manner as if OCD gardeners awaited me within. Flowers, both real on earth and imaginative otherwise, were placed in patches around the scene. Stone bridges created pathways over some of the larger ponds and were further connected by small stone paths and tables, benches, chairs, made out of fine mahogany wood, waxed within a crisp shine. I felt like I was walking through a scene carved in Alice in Wonderland or the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. If this location existed within the real world, it would no doubt be classified as a beautiful wonder and filled with tourism to inspect the ribbon-twirled petaled flowers and the golden-barked trees. There were a few signs which dedicated certain aspects of the garden to individuals who seemed to play important roles within Clark King's life. There was a patch of berries dedicated to the kind and intuitive Marsha Rawls, a bird fountain the size of a car in the name of Bill Werner's, and a series of arched hedges for the West family. There were a few more, but I didn't know the meaning of any of them and thus didn't care to memorize the information. After walking through the gardens for what seemed to be a large amount of time, I finally arrived at the doors of the castle, only to find them locked. I knocked on the doors, but nobody seemed willing or able to answer. As I stood around looking for an option, I noticed a small sign to the left of the door. The sign was implanted into the ground, but the written board was popped up to a 45-degree angle and read, For entry, state the password. The password will be the beginning of Clark. The beginning of Clark. What the hell did that mean? I moved back around the garden looking for answers as the midday sun evolved into evening sun. Dusk was coming quickly and I was without answers. There were many pockets of the garden I had not visited and it took a particular one to trigger a memory. A small raised pen sat at the thigh level and grew small plants that only came up to my mid-chest. The trees were so small like bonsai, 
but were representative of the pine family. These miniature pine trees were decorated in bright, lavish festival colors, the kind of colors on an LGBT banner, the colors of pastel cupcakes and cookies. This small collection reminded me of the neon forest back when I was adjusting, terribly, to the new world of Gignosco. There was even a small pond of water, barely visible, but held up within the wooden enclosure. The pond representation reminded me of my first battle, the monster which represented the miscarriage of Melody. Staring at the miniature neon forest reminded me so long ago of waking up within the neon forest, the true beginning of Gignosco in my adventure. No doubt the forest was overlooked by many of the inhabitants of Gignosco, but to Clark, it had been everything. It was there that he had first come to be. The first thing I remember was color. I walked back over to the main entrance doors, confident in the correct answer. I stood head held high, my body ready for what lay within the compound. Color, I shouted, loud enough so that every living plant within the garden could hear me. All that mattered was that the doors could hear me. They did, and thus swung open to greet me as I stepped inside. Unlike the metallics of the manganese castle and the writs of the royal family's housing back in Cultura City, Clark's castle carried an opulence without materialism and warmth without intensity. There were frames of art stacked on the high walls, but... They were not painting, but moving films. The walls of Clark Castle looked like interactive televisions, each with different stories. I moved forward slowly, although I got glimpses of different pieces, unexplained or unmentioned in the Gignosco I had seen. One scene featured Clark at the garage shop for which he worked for cash. He was fixing a car when one of the mechanics turned to him. You know what it's like to be different, don't you? The white man asked, sitting down next to a working Clark who looked intrigued at his colleague's statements. Yeah, I guess. That's how I feel too, Clark, except I can hide why I feel different. Maybe one day, a guy like me can be himself without having to hide it. <laughs> That'd be crazy. There was another film in another frame that didn't rely on sound. It featured Clark King in his late teens or early 20s making out with a girl on some park bench. It was cheesy, sexual at the same time, which kind of seemed to cancel out one another. In another memory, Clark was sitting at the sand of a Sunnyside beach, the water lapsing to his face. Yvette, or who I guessed was Yvette, was bringing back ice cream to where Clark was sitting. This is highway robbery with this ice cream. Yvette laughed as she handed the bowl in her right hand off to Clark before digging into her own treat. Next time I'll pack the ice cream, Clark joked before they shared a kiss. Another memory featured Clark and an older black man who I assumed was his father at dinner. Clark seemed to be in his 30s, his father twice Clark's age. I'm worried about you living alone. You're almost 70. I'm a healthy man who, who like those before me, will live on for a long ass time. Clark's father scoffed to debunk Clark's theory. You do understand why I worry, don't you, Dad? I do, I do, I do. I, I, I just don't care about my living situation. We're going to have to address it sooner or later. Hell no, we ain't. Another framed memory was of Clark's mother's funeral. Beverly King had a large cluster of people gathered around her casket at the church. The whole room seemed bleak, saturated, and contrasted as if placed under heavy filters. Clark was so young, barely able to string the world together. He watched the congregation pray for his mother, but was not able to comprehend it. I told you that formula wasn't going to work. Clark giggled, looking down at Bill's computer at the federal agency in which they both worked. I should have trusted you and not went with my gut. 
Normally I'd say trust your gut. But what if my gut's against you? Then maybe trust me. Another memory. Featured a fraternity party while another contained a rude customer back when Clark worked at the technology firm. This is the second time I'm back here and I'm still not happy with the speed of my computer. Are you incompetent, boy? The hallway led to a large kitchen, a dining area, a living room, and quiet space. There were no memories here, although there were plenty of windows which revealed the nighttime Gignosco. The house was softly lit up and unafraid of the massive amount of turned-on lights. The space was clean and proper, contemporary and refreshing without playing too hard. The kitchen looked enjoyable to use, while the dining room and living room almost went untouched. Off this massive space was a bathroom, two closets, and a bedroom. My way forward was through the original dining and living room, and that's where I went, utilizing a staircase and another hallway to reach what appeared to be the back of the castle. More frames with memories lit up beside me. The winner is Claw King! I'm so proud of you! Solve the component by entering the patch of data. Have a beer, man. We're just on the porch watching people. Freshman! This program is phenomenal, Clark. We're so glad you're working for us. I'll race you down to Miss Sylvia's house. The world is like a mirror to our face sometimes, and damn does it look ugly, both me and the world. You mean absolutely nothing to me. It, it's not your fault. I, I was the, the one who did the act. You fucking... Get your ass out of here. I should have... I, I should have told you about the abortion, but... I just thought, I, I thought of me before, before I thought about you, about us. Mommy loves you, Clark. Oh, yeah, she does. I cracked open the next set of doors, and the memories all cut off at once. The room I had entered felt like a spaceship cockpit more windows than walls. The windows were filled with purple-globbed Gignosco sky and in the distance, the fourth rock which I had not needed to visit in order to get to Clark. There was a large desk in the middle of the room hooked up with a large computer system and papers. The room was about the size of a chapel and featured minimalist space. Standing at the far edge of the room was a human being look-alike of Clark King. He wore pure white against his black skin and looked regal and clean. This was not his real body, but looked quite close, minus a few pounds and some gray hairs. Clark turned to me with the tiniest of smiles, looking at me with the glance a father might give to his son. Hello, Sydney. Clark King whispered my name as if we were friends for eternity, reuniting in the opulent back room of his manor. It's nice to finally meet you. Chapter Negative 41 Clark 2 I'm Always Staring at Death I walked forward a little bit more, so that I was only a couple feet away from the man I had been tracking down. In front of me, he was no longer Clark. This was the true Clark King within Gignosco, the man who was behind it all. He looked at me, no doubt feeling glad, anticipating my reactions of anger and confusion, maybe. So tell me, I began, unsure of what I wanted to know. All of this, everything... What do you want to know about? Clark asked like I was a customer shopping among casual fabrics. Let's start at the beginning, when you remember color and when Melody had died previously to your existence. 
I was the second child of Beverly and William King, born in Virginia in 1969. I was born on the cusp of the revolution of black men and women, and my parents were fortunate enough to be part of the elite black status slowly making its way through the country. I had a very innocent infantry, although my childhood and teenage years were more so hell for me. You met Rodney pretty early on in your journey. Rodney was a neighborhood kid, my first friend in the whole world and the first human I would get to know outside of my parents. Rodney and I would play outside, running through the suburbs without a care in the world. But when Rodney was about eight, he was ran over and hit by a, a drunk driver, hit and run on a casual Thursday evening. He turned out to be paralyzed in the legs. And the kid I'd spent so many years running with could no longer move without the accompaniment of his chair. We were close to the birthing of the 1980s, and kids could be so cruel. As much as I tried to hang on to Rodney, Rodney pulled away from me. The other kids ostracized Rodney and made him the blunt of their jokes. Kids can be like savages, just like the savages of Blade Desert. Charlene was the true leader of them all. She was the least violent in action, but the most violent within her heart. Charlene dictated that Rodney was no longer valuable and taunted him practically to death. Because when Rodney was 15, he killed himself with his dad's gun. I was extremely disheartened to hear this. I, I attended his funeral and everything. We hadn't really talked in those last five years, but, you know, he had chosen seclusion over me. But Rodney would always remain important to me. You saw Cultura City. It is my haven both metaphorically and figuratively. It is where humanity was its most tame and collected, leaving the schoolyard and exploring the streets and the town with casual friends, but more so than alone with some of the highlights of my youth much better than the conformist attitudes of high school where everyone lost their identity and tried to blend in. I always did average at best when it came to fitting in. Who was Helena Price? I questioned. And who was the king? Helena Price was my first girlfriend at the age of 12. She was kind of a bitch. But looking back, I blame that age in general. Pre-teens and teenagers are most likely bitches. I mean, aren't they not? That's not even a gendered statement either. All adolescents seem to bear similar tendencies towards the insufferable. I find out that uh, Helena became a really good fitness instructor, and she has two kids, so she did well for herself. One of the few people I knew who got that chance. The king was my father. The first king I supposed to when it came to Beverly and I. I loved my father. He's still alive, actually. He's retired, doesn't do much, but... He's always a true leader in my life. Following the death of my mother, he became a single black father who worked passionately for his career while raising me. Not many men would be able to do that, would they? I suppose my father was the highest of my ideals and the most inspirational figure I had out of all of them. So when Helena Price was eaten by Marie Gay, the eater, what did that signify? The fact that Helena and I were out of time. Clark shrugged. Some things happen in Gignosco for greater purposes. Others happen merely because they did. So like the time when I was almost killed by the individualists and the ants of the colony. Trying to fit in, change yourself, and otherwise tear and rebuild is as close to death as one can get without drawing for blood. College was your true savior, was it not? It was, like for many people. I found solace within college between my academic admiration and my independent freedom. 
College really does make the Catholic school children sinners. It normalizes the weird and creates a more so even playing field. At least that's what happened in my undergrad. You met my fraternity, no doubt. Your fraternity brothers were cool, but the governor wasn't cool. It was kind of a shock to find out what Gov had done, killing his wife like that. Those actions did not reflect the Gov I knew, the man I had admired for a long time at the garage. Gov was the man who took a chance on me, knowing full well I wanted to work in computers. It was hard, realizing sometimes our closest role models and emulators have that little bit of darkness in them. Granted, Gov's darkness wasn't that small. In the end, he went to jail for eh, two decades or so. What separated Gov from you and I is that he acted on that small bit of darkness. He acted on his yin energy, the darkness while forgoing the light of yang completely. All I am is yin, I shrugged, at least going by your definition. <laughs> All humans are a mixture of both, my friend, Clark smiled. That was perhaps most evident in your times in Sludge Swamp, the go-kart track, Magganese Castle. You met the negatives of Sludge Swamp while meeting Sheila. Talk about a yin and yang situation. Who was Sheila? She was my sweet panhandle Florida Georgian grandmother who died in my 20s. Her death didn't affect me that much, you know, not to be cold about it, but I didn't see my grandmother that often. You got to enjoy the go-karts, too. A wild summer of mine, indeed. And my rival, the Prince of Metal. The whole situation is filled not with regret, but I suppose a young ignorance which I've discarded since. Jerome, that situation changed him and I. James Du Bois, Jerome Barkley, Bill. These were your three closest friends throughout your life. I felt like I was given an interview, but I wanted to know everything. James was killed by his own body. You and Jerome stopped talking, and Bill? These questions are loaded. Clark King sighed, as if I had asked to buy an expensive jacket on his credit card. But I'll answer them the best I can. James, like a lot of American men, fell ill. He used alcohol to self-medicate. His death was a failure on his own part, but of the world around him. I won't take credit. We fell apart after college and such, but... Du Bois was an angel whose wings were plucked. In terms of Jerome, he's alive and well. We are nowhere near as close as we once were. He didn't get expelled trying to get back at Saunders, trust me. But, well, you know, he was scared from it all. Saunders did pretty good in life, you know, but that's off topic. Jerome has his degree, got a job in marketing, has two kids, and is currently retired with his husband. Husband? Isn't that a plot twist? Clark smiled. The difference between Jerome and I is that he had the opportunity to hide his identity for a long time. People see me and see a black man, just like Shelly, that bitch. The Plantation, Mr. Wyatt's Shack. I know what happened to you. Clark acknowledged, looking downtrodden at the vileness of Gignosco. Perhaps he had watched what had happened on the screens in this very room. Shelley was the worst co-worker I ever had, although there were many similar racists in my life. And then there were others who were like Shelley's guards, complacent men and women, bystanders and otherwise benefactors to Shelley's terribleness. Now, Mr. Wyatt is sort of based off a man who I came across in my youth. He made suggestive comments to me, and thankfully, I ran away from that man. 
I never saw the man who made those remarks again. I think he might have been a passing pedophile or perhaps a pimp or sex dealer. But like Shelley, Mr. Wyatt was a collection of individuals who morphed together over time. You learn quickly what it's like to be black in America. Was that your biggest hardship, being black? No, it was almost my biggest hardship. But the betrayal of Yvette, the death of our child, that that took years of recovery, Sydney. I don't think I could ever recover from that. I mean, slowly and surely I did, but it took lavender and therapy to get me out of my slump, but I digress. Yvette went from my heaven to my hell so fast that it could make the ordinary man weak. But I was not an ordinary man. I was meant to be more than ordinary. And that's why when I was granted the opportunity to create Lavender, I jumped on that opportunity. Lavender provided me with a simple title which would echo into a tribute to my mother. I was able to create a magnum opus, the kind that most fools seek and the kind that the undesirable can only dream of. Clark King paused briefly and walked towards me, his eyes cast with a type of intrigue that could only carry the most embellished of secrets. We were only a couple of feet away as the early break of dawn barely shone itself within the purple-colored arrangement of light, which was a bouquet within the deep still of Gignasco sky. So that leads us to the truth of it all. The purpose of Lavender. You were here to find out about it, weren't you? In fact, knowing the kind of men and women which became employees of the federal government, I suppose your intuition has keyed you into the concept. (laughs) Lavender was a project I began working on four years ago. I was asked to create a complicated worm, the type of infiltration that could simply slide in the back end of an enemy or ally computer without notice, the kind of code that could swallow information in a copying event so that it moved invisibly through the systems it penetrated. It was a code designed to spy, designed to lift information without disturbing the master. It was a parasite to go unseen by hosts. And as of January 2016, it was almost done. The problem was that I was missing three algorithms which left Lavender from being completed. No doubt you're here to stir me awake. If Lavender is finished, then it would be an incredible victory for the United States. We could properly delve into dozens of countries whose servers we have access to. It would be revolutionary. We'd know everything about the countries around us. We'd be like gods through the code. It would no doubt be a life-changing series of benefits and you called it lavender because your mother's favorite flower of course that but my virus was like a flower growth would bloom to full perfection with this plan i am the man behind the most important virus within the united states government pretty fucking incredible given my backstory right an old black man like me beat out my young white peers beat out the expected I'm proud of where I am, although it's hard to be proud of the coma I'm currently in. I pulled out the button, still shielded and locked away. I held it in my grip, looking up to Clark King as if presenting himself with the most desirable gift in the world. If you hold on to me or this button, we can both go back to Earth. You'll be awakened from your coma and given life on Earth once more. You don't want to live in this castle. You don't want to stay in Gignasco, do you? I'm afraid, Clark admitted. Perhaps I won't wake up on Earth. Perhaps I won't be up for too long. I, I can currently live for a little while longer here. I'm, I'm guaranteed life here. At the end of the day, should I hold on to the guaranteed 20 or 30 years? I think I should. 
You need to finish your child, Lavender. Do not talk to me about children. Clark's voice shifted, and I knew why. I'm sorry, perhaps the word choice was too overbearing. Fuck yes, it was too much. Clark King's eyes darkened, pooling with a collection of tears which had been moved to form waterfalls down his currently ashy face. You've seen my life in a way which no one else has seen. My parents, Yvette, Rodney, my fraternity brothers, friends in life, no one has gotten this opportunity. You know more about me than anyone in Gignosco or on Earth. But do you actually know me? Perhaps overall humans are incapable of fully understanding another. Maybe only a few lucky, rare bunch actually get that chance of the absolute comprehension of another human being. I implanted my stories, my emotions, my perspective into your cold, lifeless body. I know what you are. The kind of man more built like an animal than a human. But for dancing in my subconscious, you were going to be chained to the groundwork of life for the very first time. The groundwork of emotion, pain, joy, every feeling that one's bones can handle. And you survived it all, Sydney. I didn't expect you to be standing in front of me in the throne room of this impervious castle. Silence dipped between us as the emotions cooled over like lava falling into the ocean and cleanly sizzling itself out. What's that rock over there? I asked, pointing out to the only rock in the subterranean of Gignasco I had not visited. Come, stare out with me. Clark beckoned as we both made our way to the glass perimeter of the castle. I stepped in line with him, my face and body only inches from the glass, my own reflection a soft, transparent hue. Outwards, I stared at the rock, which was kind of like a mountain or a volcano. The top of the mountain was open, and there was a decent slit, perhaps only enough so to get a generalized glimpse at the innards. The volcanic shell was hard and rocky, while internally there was a swirling black hole. The black hole did not eat at its rocky outer carcass, but joined it in its eternity. The fourth rock of this subterranean did not appear to be visible, but did appear dangerous. I turned to Clark, who was still witnessing the encased black hole. That is death. Clark spoke the three words in the opposite delivery and candor that one might say the three words, I love you. I call the location the black hole. I will never be there. I never will. But it's always near me. Such is death in the real world. We are always being chased by death, and I suppose life is but refusing to submit to death. The black hole's always been there, right next to Clark Castle. Clark King and I watched the swirling abyss in silence, the type of silence you can share with someone you are comfortable with. It was the silence that tired friends utilized while chilling in the same room. The silence lovers share when they are witness to something more incredible than themselves. The silence individuals face an enjoyable solitude. The moment was perfect silence, an archetype better than any other. Finally, moments later, I readdressed Clark in front of the swirling mass. So are you going to come back? I questioned. Are you going to come back with me? I don't want to, Clark shrugged. At the end of the day, I'm scared. You can tell me the algorithms. They're watching us now, Clark. Can you tell me them? Are you able to tell me them? No. They're not locked into the subconsciousness. The algorithms are currently in my consciousness, and my consciousness is nothing but darkness from the coma. Interesting. So you have to be awake. Am I correct? I suppose so. 
So will you hold my hand? I'll take us back. I reached my hand forward as a scared Clark King looked down at my hand. Clark moved forward, enticed and probably prepared for the sacrifice coming towards him. But Clark did not grab my hand, but ended up stepping backwards away from me as if I was contracted with illness. If you beat me, you could take me back and wake me up with your little red button, Clark bet, sounding like a gambling man in the need of a miracle. But if I win, you will return back to the government holdings to which you came. But either way, your time in Gignosco is nearly complete. I'll be your last challenge here. Chapter negative 42, Clark 3, Light Among Light. Are you serious? I questioned. We're going to fight this out? Not to death, just to submission. Clark smiled. We are both on polar sides of the issue. There's no way to compromise. Fine. I sighed. Stepping back across the open space of the room as more dawn light spilled through the glass and twisted itself onto the smooth granite. Clark joined me as now we were only ten feet away from each other in the open space. Underneath Clark's robe was a small sword which Clark pulled out. With a flourish of his hand, the sword flared with lavender-colored flames. I am not like the challenges you have faced before with their one strength and their one flaw. I am multifaceted. Clark looked across at me. Are you ready, Sydney? I pulled out the blade of Helena Price and covered it with warm, colored energy and confirmation. Not another word was shed as the battle ignited. Clark and I met halfway, our swords slamming into each other like two waves. The force caused us to both move backwards before we moved forward again. We were on repeat for a while, as our blades met each other like long-lost friends with a pinch of volatile behavior spread between them. After a couple of minutes of sword fighting, Clark began to use the lavender-colored flames which struck out at me in haphazard patterns. I used my own energy to form bullets back at Clark while we both utilized our blades. Clark stepped back a few degrees and snapped his fingers which created a sandstorm that whipped through the room without warning. My vision was impaired, although Clark seemed fine even with the sand grains breaking into our bodies. The sandstorm, swords, bullets, fire continued for a while until Clark changed the biome again. We now stood on an icy landscape as if ice skating without skates. Clark charged at me and I managed to dodge, although Clark countered with flames which were inches away from charring my skin. I thought we were fighting for submission, not murder. I barked, eyes drawn into smaller slits. What quicker way is there than submission through the threat of life? Clark philosophically rolled off his tongue as the biome changed within the room. This time, Clark wielded colorful patterned rocks with designs taken from indigenous tribes. Andy Warhol artists and exotic architecture painted brightly and vividly upon the hard stone beneath the art. The beautiful artwork was surrounded by purple fire as they projectiled across to me. I pulled out my empty gun and filled it with my own bullets, which fired towards the rocks. The rocks splintered like meteors, their beautiful designs exploding in my eyes. Clark had now changed his form, as the fire now consumed his entirety. He looked at me, calm within the flames like some oxymoron you'd never see on Earth. I am determined to remain here, Clark explained to me as he stepped forward slightly. As much as lavender is the reason of my existence, doesn't my own existence outweigh anything I can make? If lavender is why you are here, then you are indebted to it for the rest of your life, even if that means losing your life over it. 
<laughs> you speak like a true sociopath or psychopath or whatever the acceptable term is, Clark chuckled. You would only be able to think of your nature and desire, not about yourself without that. Humans must be limited to your vision. Death is welcomed if not to you, then to your victims. There is a difference here. If I were you, I'd most likely choose to complete my project, I shrugged. I don't get the value of my own life when compared to my work, especially with the brute strength of Lavender. You said it yourself. Lavender would change this country, change the world. How does that place second to your life? I would see it equal or superior to a single human life. I cannot tell if courage or idiocy runs in your veins, but I suppose the flavor of your blood would be the same. Clark shrugged and ran up to me, large blades forming out of his blazing skin. I countered with my sword once again, swinging wildly in both an offensive and defensive maneuver. Clark came close to severing me with one of the random blades upon him on multiple occasions. I managed to get out of it alive, even though the fire came close to cooking my body. Clark turned back a bit, the blades entering his body and vanishing as the fire died down as if blown out. With a single twist, Clark disrobed the white robe, standing only with white pants and shoes. His chest was alive, with sweat-covered twitching muscles that seconded my own. In real life, Clark was larger and heavier, but here, in his subconscious, Clark could be anything he wanted, even though most things appeared out of his control in Gignosco. With a single burst forward, Clark came upon me with fists covered in bursts of gold light. I used my sword, which countered well against the fists. For a while, we were slightly mismatched, even though the fight was the most aggressive I'd ever had. Clark leaned back and opened his mouth, arrows tossing forward in droves towards me. I immediately raised energy from my sword to cover my body. The arrows came close but did not pierce my skin. Clark transformed into a tiger, of which I used my gun to take down by nicking his shoulder. Clark morphed back to his human form, clutching the bullet injury, which had translated to his real human shoulder. Goodness, you got me there, Clark admitted. But you're far away from victory, Sydney. Do you think I'm stupid enough to think that I've won? I demanded to know, and Clark shrugged simply before, out of thin air, a simple button-down shirt came upon Clark's body, hiding the muscles beneath. No, you're only smart if you manage to get here. It doesn't mean that you've won. I'll take that as a compliment. Good, you should. Clark formed a bow and arrow out of thin air, a layer of fur adorning his skin while buck antlers were tied into his now Afro-stylized hair. Clark loaded the bow with what looked to be a weapon mimicking an ivory tusk. Multiple tusks flew as I dodged them, striking back long distance with my bullets. Clark's buck antlers grew out to specifically stop my bullets, although the buck antlers would snap upon impact. I managed to get close to Clark and utilize a larger bullet which issued in front of me. My creation elements were limited compared to Clark, so I had to get an extra mile to keep up with the man Gignosco called God. With a single boom of bursted air... I was forced away from Clark, who now held a device loaded with large missiles, all aimed at me, and all stacked above Clark like he was lifting a small bag of groceries. The missiles immediately flew across the room towards me before impacting into a small trap of energy I formed around me. The missiles exploded, but I was protected even as they flared up. I had not created much in my time of Gignosca, but now I had to utilize all the energy I could muster. All of this, like the attacks done earlier, had committed no damage against the Clark Castle estate. The smoke and fire from the explosion was sucked out of the sky and settled upon the floor. Clark and I looked across from each other, slightly injured and breathing heavily. Another standstill, Clark sighed. Look at us with our convictions. 
I've never acted on an unsupported conviction, I spat. So I'm nothing more than your conviction. This must be proven wrong. Black liquid energy akin to ink or oil began to wrap itself around Clark until his entire body had vanished. Within Clark's movements, I could sense that this form was the ultimate one. There was nothing else which needed to be showcased for me. Clark would use this to end me, or at least try to end me. The final battle in Gagnoska would come down to fists and kicks like some crazy school fight during recess. You know the fights. Kids would circle and spit at each other as if they had edge when they had barely been fresh from the machine of life. Their metal was dulled and innocent, although occasionally shown with a flash. Clark came to me with a right hook and I countered with my left hand. Our clenched fists slammed into the other's faces at breaking point as both of us sprawled backwards. I looked at the completely obsidian figure and moved forward. As much as I had gotten to know Clark, he was standing in the way of completing my mission. I wasn't going to have too much more of him at this point. I was over Gignosco. Clark may have used his emotions and feelings and injected them into me, but that didn't mean they were there forever. I am Gignosco, aren't I? Clark's voice was just as crisp behind the liquid as it would be in front of it. You are, but I'm not part of Gignosco. I am merely my own self, I spat, trading blows back and forth with Clark. His body twisted and fought in ways which the real Clark would never. Does this make you think you're better than me? Clark shrugged. No, your powers just don't work on me as well as they would have worked on anyone else in your domain. Hmm. <laughs> we finished talking for now as the black liquid pooled off of Clark and began attacking me of its own accord. Fire-colored energy blossomed off of me and attacked the liquid. Clark and I's productions went to warfare as we continued our own battle. I slowly had begun to crack through the black liquid. Even though the piece in front of me was gelatinous, there was evident wear and tears within the structure. Another punch of mine tore into Clark's shoulder, which caused part of the black armor to break off like a stale gingerbread cookie. Clark looked down at his armor's missing piece, even though his own eyes were behind the armor. Using his distracted moment, I punched him straight in the jaw and followed up with three punches to the chest. The black protection exploded to pieces, the armor having been taken down to chunks within four attacks. Clark spilled backwards as I landed one more huge, powerful kick to his chest. I then picked up Clark like a corpse from the river before moving to place the defeated Clark in his desk chair. Clark looked shocked to have been taken down, but so was fate. I pulled out the button and looked back at Clark, who had gotten past the initial blow of losing. Take me back then, Clark said, his eyes lit with neutrality. He had lost his chance for freedom, although he was a decent man to uphold the agreement. I grabbed Clark's wrist while I finally opened the box. The small red button was awaiting for my grasp, but I didn't feel right to assume Clark was ready. Is there anything else? I asked Clark King. Anything else you need or you want to see before we leave? No. It'll be too painful to look back, Clark admitted. But I suppose, just in case, you're a really good federal agent, Sidney. You're a really good federal hacker, Clark. Clark laughed, and I couldn't help but smile. That's right, I smiled. Before the opportunity to dive into the mind of Clark King, I had not smiled. Nor would I have actually felt a joke or warmth, and maybe I was wrong to assume this mission wouldn't change me. Maybe Clark was wrong to think that he could stir emotion within me, but I didn't want to think of it anymore. I was done experiencing emotion, so I pressed the button. Chapter 1. Life Changer 
The world faded out into darkness and light poured its way in as I slowly awoke to the laboratory room where my mission had begun. A few scientists helped me get out of the wiring helmet clothes in the backpack featuring a now useless map, gun, and button. I looked over to where Clark King was. Clark was staring awake, and for a quick second we exchanged a glance towards one another. We had shared an experience that, well, that had bonded us in such a way which no one else in my life could nor would be able to receive that experience. Williams, my boss, which I had not seen or heard of in a long time, came up to me. The rest of the room had shifted over to the awoken Clark King in an effort to immediately burden him with the algorithms to finish up Lavender. You did great, kiddo. Williams muttered as I stood up out of the chair. It took me a couple minutes to adjust. My limbs were weak. My body felt as if it had been restarted, and my mouth was dry as cotton. My senses were coming back to normality, although it didn't feel as though my body had been unconscious in some ways. In some ways, Gignasco seemed a part of Earth. How long had I been out? I questioned, getting used to the new dynamics, which were in reality the dynamics I was always used to. You were out for two weeks? Shit, it felt like double that, maybe even two months. Time worked differently in Clark's mind, I suppose. Williams smiled. I want to go see Clark, I whispered, looking back over to the surrounding scientists who had made Clark almost invisible from where Williams and I were standing. You can see him later. Now, come on, I'll, I'll get you a shower. Williams led me out of the laboratory, and I was able to take a long, hot shower and, and change clothing. The hot water was real water. Everything was once again 100% real. I felt my skin almost tearing it apart to confirm that it was mine, that it was real. I had forgotten that, had I been killed off in Clark's mind, I most likely would have suffered brain damage and thus basically be dead. I was alive and kicking, and that I was grateful for. I washed myself up, letting the water get me fully conscious. It felt like I had taken the sleep of a century. I didn't even know what had happened in my own world for two weeks. I turned the water off after a while and slowly dried myself up. I looked myself in the mirror, naked and dripping. Sidney Isidore Mercer stood in front of me, although he was no longer the same man as he had been prior to Gignasco. When I was done with my shower in the locker room, I went up to see Williams. I won't lie, Williams said as he sat down behind the desk. There were times I didn't think you were going to survive. Such as when I was tied up by that weird doctor, or Mr. Wyatt, or many of the fucked up people in Clark King's world. I asked nonchalantly, already forgetting the doctor's name. Yeah, that was tough, but I got past them. You did, Williams nodded. It was incredible shit. Not many of my agents can do that. You're officially number one in my book. Glad the mission went well, I muttered. How's Clark? Williams stopped. The upbeat positivity slowed down a bit, and I was immediately worried. Clark King died 23 minutes after being awoken, so about 10 minutes ago, Williams muttered. The complications of being abruptly woken, his medical condition, just everything seemed to tax him. I faded out for a second. Everything seemed so fucked in that current moment. I had gotten to know Clark King. He had changed me to some degree. I had completed the mission, but it had come with the cost. Had I been the reason Clark was dead? Did I push him too far? The man who I had gotten to know was gone. The whole mission seemed pointless. Who cared about Lavender if that meant that Clark King was dead? Only an hour earlier or so, I was telling Clark his life was important for Lavender, and now here I was, like some past hypocrite turned savior. 
Unfortunately, before dying, Clark King did uh, finish the missing algorithms needed to complete Lavender. And uh, by the end of the night, Clark will live on through his amazing code. Williams tried shaking off everything negative about the situation. We'll be hunting down information in new ways than before. That's good. Williams could tell I was upset, and so he leaned in towards me as if that would make us bond closer. You're okay, right? Not too banged up in the head or some shit. Williams asked, trying to slide over everything that had happened like it hadn't happened. You're okay. He asked the question like it was casual. As if I had not been tortured through the dreams and life of a man's subconscious. I did not go to some Sunday church picnic or down the street for an ice cream. I had felt emotions for the first time in my life. I had to actually empathize with another human being. I had been tested, been tortured, gone to battle with multitudes of things that one could only create in deep fantasy. I had been raped and held captive, had formed hopelessness in my mind, and now I was considering I was not okay. I was barely holding it together. But the Sydney I used to know, the Sydney that Williams would want, was the Sydney who could hold it together. For now, I would swallow so many things which just wanted to spill out of my mouth. My mind emptied itself as if filled with trash, and I stared back at Williams with my usual emotionless appearance. Yeah, I'm fine. I spoke, shrugging off everything, acting as if I had never met Clark King. So, do you have my next directive? <laughs>